Let's pray again. We continue, God, to be bowed before you. It's been good to sing and good to pray. We ask that you would reveal yourself clearly as you have now through your word. Help us to be attentive. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are good soil. Plant within us things that bring you joy, that bring you glory, that bring you honor, and in which we find joy as well. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing this this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we get to one of the most difficult passages or verses in the Gospel of Mark to interpret. And in some ways this is exactly the point of studying straight through a book of the Bible, reading it as it was written to be read. Reading and studying a book of the Bible from start to finish allows a reader or a student to read God's Word in its context rather than being lifted out of its context, which makes a passage of Scripture or anything uh, susceptible to being misread or misunderstood. And reading or studying the book of the Bible from start to finish also forces the reader to read and consider those parts of Scripture that sometimes we would rather skip over and not choose on our own for a variety of reasons. But intentionally skipping over parts of Scripture that we don't understand, one, takes the easy way out, two, denies the difficulty but also the richness of some parts of Scripture, And three, means that readers themselves are missing out inevitably on parts or facets of God's truth. And so here we are at a familiar passage of Scripture at the beginning of chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, embedded in which are a particularly difficult couple of verses, which we'll see. At chapter 4, we get to the biggest block of teaching in Mark's Gospel. Mark, the author whose goal was not really to get every detail that he includes in his gospel in chronological art order. Mark, the author, has grouped together a number of Jesus' parables here, beginning with a parable that serves as sort of an interpretive foundation for all of the parables that will follow. The parable that we'll read this morning in just a moment is a key or the key, in other words, Jesus' key to understanding the rest of his parables. And so before we read that, a few things first that are important and worth noting about parables. First, the Hebrew and Greek idea of parables and that word parable is much broader, was much broader than how we understand the term parable in English. In English, the term has a strict and narrow meaning, but in Hebrew and Greek, a parable could be a metaphor or an analogy, or a simile, or even a riddle. Thus, Jesus' parables took many, many, many different forms. Second, 
Jesus' parables often had multiple interpretations. Sometimes different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, themselves would in their gospels interpret Jesus' parables and the same parable across those three gospels in different ways. Thus, we must be open to different points and meanings in Jesus' parables, but also be careful not to lock in too hard or too quickly to one particular point or meaning in Jesus' parables. And third, not every facet of a parable was necessarily important to the point or uh, to the meaning of a story. Some elements of parables were extraneous bonus material. It was not necessary in understanding Jesus' parables to consider every word or element or to read too much into such. That's parables. Now on to chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge so that everyone and as many people as possible could hear him. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, listen up. A farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plant so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell along good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60 some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. How do we know that the seeds that the farmer were sowing were corn? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Yes. That's a joke. And now the scene shifts. Verse 10. When Jesus was alone... The twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And these middle verses make up the particularly difficult part of this passage. There's going to be more in a moment. Jesus has now gotten alone with his uh, now 12 closest disciples and the rest of those who made up what at that time was his inner circle. At that time possibly referring to his brothers or family or fellow folks from Nazareth that we saw last week in chapter 3 in verse 21, 34, 35. These were insiders. And Jesus said that the secret of the kingdom of God had been given to them and seemingly maybe not given to others, at least at that time. And this doesn't sound like the Jesus, the generous Jesus that we know, but it is. And there are plenty of other places in the Gospels and in the Scriptures that convey this idea, which we'll consider briefly. 
But first, it's important to catch here the importance to Jesus of the kingdom of God and the secret, he says, of the kingdom of God. You know from your study of the scriptures that Jesus talks and teaches more about the kingdom of God than he does any other topic by far. It's what he talked about most of the time. It was his favorite thing to talk about. But this is the first time that Jesus mentions the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel. And this is only the second time that the kingdom of God is mentioned in Mark's gospel. The first time was back in chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15 where Mark wrote, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news which constituted the kingdom of God. And now Jesus in chapter 4, Mark is about to record parable after parable after parable in which Jesus describes what the kingdom of God is like, which we'll begin to read next week. And it's worth saying briefly here that if there's one idea from the scriptures and the gospels and Jesus that you really need to know, and by that that I mean be able to define and describe and understand, it is the kingdom of God. I've talked about it a lot over the last couple of years. I'm not going to deviate into it too much today, but it's important that every one of us who are in Christ be able to understand define and describe as the parables coming up in the next few weeks in chapter 4 of Mark will help us do what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God beyond and and, and different than what we think of as heaven up there, out there one day. That's another sermon, that's another sermons. We're only touching on it today. I will say this this morning, though. When Jesus here says, talks about, quote, the secret of the kingdom of God, he is referring to the secret of himself, the secret of the person of Jesus, the reality that the lowly figure Jesus of Nazareth was, as Mark said in chapter 1, verse 1, Messiah and Son of God, that which As we read about last week, at the end of chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, the scribes of the Pharisees, and to some degree, even Jesus' family and close friends, were reluctant or refused to acknowledge or to see. And so by secret, Mark here means, and Jesus here means, Jesus himself. Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Son of God, the secret. And by secret, Mark in the Gospels and New Testament mean not something that is kept from people indefinitely, but rather a truth that had not yet been made known to them, which God had not yet revealed to them. Not something that a person could not learn or obtain on their own, or rather something that someone could not learn or obtain on their own, but something that was given to them, something that was revealed to them. Sometimes at just the right time and revealed by God. I think of the title of uh, 20th century missiologist, missionary, Leslie Newbigin's book, The Open Secret. Now while it was a secret, it was also made known by God at the right time and to the right people. And that secret of God's kingdom 
was Jesus. Verse 10. When Jesus was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that, quoting Isaiah here. They may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And while these words which Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 and echo other things said in Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 12, and so forth, they may seem unpalatable to us in some ways and inconsistent with our understanding of God and who is gracious and generous and merciful and inclusive and always reaching out to people not wanting anyone to perish. There are some things that we must understand and that are helpful here. First, these words simply describe, these words from Isaiah that Jesus quotes in verse 12, they simply describe reality as it is. They state how things are. The observed reality and truth, including that some people's hearts are hard to God. They state or declare what, it, what is apparent, how things are. Second, they attribute to God authority in all things, even when God's ways are not understood, allowing God to be understood and worshipped and honored as the sovereign one and who is one who is in control, not out of control, who alone retains the right and the power, even in Mark's gospel and especially in Mark's gospel, who retains the power and the right to include people or not to include people, which I know sounds harsh, but allows us to acknowledge that God is completely in control and what's happening here is not random. And third and finally is this caveat. Though this inside-out, insider-outsider imagery seems locked and permanent in this passage, clearly such is not the case even in Mark's gospel. As one commentator wrote, Mark does not regard insiders and outsiders as immutable distinctions. Their status is determined solely by their hearing and believing that as the sower, Jesus brings the fruitful gospel of God. Some outsiders will become insiders. The Gerasene demoniac in chapter 5, the woman with a flow of blood later in chapter 5, the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7, a Gentile centurion in chapter 15, perhaps even a scribe in chapter 12. And likewise, some insiders, such as Judas, will become outsiders. Jesus' words in verse 12 may seem at first unpalatable to us, but at a minimum, they do accurately describe how things are and who is in control while allowing for different outcomes. And now back to our story. Verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, to Jesus' disciples and others who had gotten away to a secluded place with him. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown, the hard-packed path. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Satan is the bird. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. 
when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. There is hard soil, there is shallow soil, there is thorny soil, and there is good soil. Jesus goes through just for his disciples and those who are on the inside and who are already inclined to hear and explains to him this parable. The hard soil is made up of people or describes people who don't want any other voices in their life, who don't want any outside interference, who think they have either enough or have it all, who ultimately want to be in charge of their own lives and define reality not just for themselves but beyond themselves, who are wanting and willing to say, I see the world how I see the world and I am the final authority. They are people who maybe think they have all of the answers on their own. They are people who are not open to input and feedback from others. They are people who are unwilling to forgive. They are people who live in a closed system. And when God comes knocking, they put their hands over their ears. They cannot hear. They do not want to hear. Their lives are like hard-packed soil, Jesus said. And the sower comes and the imagery that those down on the shore could look up and see on the fields that went down to the Sea of Galilee, that the fishermen could watch as they were in their boats. Farmers would sow seed liberally by hand, not placing each seed, but sowing liberally by hand. And inevitably, some of those seeds would fall on soil that had been walked on by men, by animals, that had never been plowed over. And so it sat there. And the birds, imagine seagulls, were just waiting and watching. And almost as soon as those seeds, the word of God, hit that hard soil, swooped in and took it. Jesus describes those birds as Satan, who's ready and perched to come in and steal what will not be received in people's hearts by by good soil. That is the hard soil. And then there is shallow soil. Maybe you have known people whose soil seems shallow, and maybe we have been. And in some ways, each of these soils describe not one person here or one person there, but all of us at different times, different seasons of our lives, uh, different dispositions toward this or that or toward another person. Any of us, one of these interpretations uh, could mean is any of us could be any of these soils at any time. And so the shallow soil describes 
soil that lands, uh, a seed that lands on good soil, but only for a little while. Only for a little while. These are the Christians who are Christians on Sunday morning. But when the hard times come, and Jesus says the hard times will come, for those who live by my word, persecution, trouble, and hardship. When those hard times come, because their roots are not deep and go to deep water, and only are able to tolerate a little bit of heat and a little bit of sun, those seeds will, will wilt. Those seeds will die. It's important that a seed has deep roots in God and is continually fed and nurtured. In the soil around the Sea of Galilee, there was a thick limestone. And at places, the soil was only an inch or two or three or sometimes four or five inches deep. And so often, uh, according to where a farmer planted his seed, that seed wouldn't go very deep. And that seed wouldn't last very long. It wouldn't last through long periods without rain. And Jesus describes some people in this way. They happily receive seed. They nod when the preacher says this or that. They're glad to read their Bibles, but they only allow the seed and its roots to go so deep. And so it quickly dies, shallow soil. I'm reminded of something that Lily Tomlin once said. She said, the, things about, the thing about Californians, and this is when I was in Texas, the thing about Californians, and she was mostly speaking of Southern Californians and mostly speaking of people who lived in Los Angeles and probably mostly people who lived in Hollywood, just to be clear. The thing about Californians is, Californians is that once you really get to know them, just below that cheap, shiny, artificial veneer beats a little plastic heart. And I thought, that describes the really shallow soil. Not that people in Hollywood or Southern California or California are shallow like that. But many of us at times can live skin deep and only skin deep. The soil, or the seed rather, Jesus intends to go deeper. And then third is the thorny soil. These are, these are the distracted people. These are the people who say or imply that God is first, but always put God second. Other things are always susceptible and likely to creep into their lives. Uh, they get consumed by the many different opportunities, many of which are really, really good. Hobbies, pursuits, avocations, jobs, a variety of things that are good in their lives, but overcome the seed, squeeze it out, uh, like thorns squelching out the life of something. Jesus names a couple of things in particular. Worries of this life. Things that we allow to consume our emotions, our mind, our time, and worry. And Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Saying, do not worry about what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about what you will have or wear. Your Father knows all of your needs. Do not worry. The worries and then the deceitfulness of wealth. The problem is not wealth itself. The scriptures never condemn people just for being rich. The problem is the deceitfulness of wealth. And that wealth deceptively promises things that it cannot deliver. Jesus said that you cannot serve, a person cannot serve both God and money. There's only room on the altar for one person or one thing. But we allow wealth 
to have a prominent place in our lives, even squeezing out the life of that seed, not allowing it to grow and flourish. The juxtaposition, juxtaposition for me of Christmas is something I always struggle with because on one evening we worship Jesus and worship Jesus born into poverty, born into this world, condescending. Jesus who gave up everything, Jesus who emptied himself of everything. And then the next morning, we can, or sometimes that night, consume all kinds of wealth for ourselves. It's not that stark, but there's this juxtaposition and Jesus warns about how wealth can function like a thorny bush squeezing out a crop. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And then there is a fourth sort of soil into which seeds that a farmer plants end up. And that soil Jesus describes simply as good. Where people hear the word, accept it, even if it's hard, and a crop is produced of 30, 60, or 100 fold. Think about the math of Jesus' farmer in this parable. Three quarters of the seeds that this farmer sows end up on hard soil, end up on shallow soil, end up on thorny soil, and never come to fruition, never produce fruit. And yet, in the hope that we have of the gospel and the kingdom that Jesus describes elsewhere as a mustard seed that expands and grows and multiplies, though three-quarters of the seeds that are sown lead to nothing, the one that does could lead to 30, 60, and 100-fold production. The people of the good soil are receptive. They pray like this. They're malleable. They are humble. They are hungry. They are open. They are receptive. Either the hungry people or the good soil people or when we are good soil in our lives. There are different ways of reading this. In this passage, Jesus is saying in a way that he admonishes, admonishes and exhorts, be the good soil, friends. Be the good soil. You can see the hard soil. You can see the shallow soil. You can see up on the hillside the soil where the crops are squeezed out by thorns be the good soil he is pleading with his friends. That is, that is the way of understanding this passage that is prescriptive. Be this soil. There's another, and finally, and I'll end up uh, with this, a different way of understanding all of this. And it's not prescriptive, but rather descriptive. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples whom he will shortly send out. And he will send them out to preach. You remember back in chapter 2, Jesus says, The reason that I have come is to preach the kingdom of God or to preach the gospel. The reason that he came is to preach and to proclaim and to announce and to share and to tell. And he will give that same mission to his disciples shortly. And so he's preparing them by 
telling them that when you go out to preach, when you go out to declare, to announce, to tell, to share, there are lots of different kinds of soil out there. Some of it's hard. Some of it's shallow. Some of it is predisposed to being squeezed out by thorns. Some of it's good. And Jesus says, your job is to be like the farmer whom Jesus never identifies. And so it could be God the Father, but also could be each of his disciples. Your job is to sow seeds, to sow them liberally, to sow them generously, to sow them everywhere that you can, to plant and to prepare and to be open to any harvest. Your responsibility is not fruitfulness, but faithfulness. Your responsibility with the seed is simply to sow it. And it's not up to you whether or not it produces fruit. And so Jesus gives to his disciples a sort of assurance that God is in control. They are not responsible for every person coming to faith. But God will take care of that. Their job and their calling is to sow seed generously. The fruitfulness of seed depends on the condition of the soil. The word of God will do what the condition of the heart allows. And so Jesus says to his disciples as sowers, trust him. Throw the soil everywhere. You don't know what kind of soil that will eventually be. And our job is to sow, to plant, to share the word of God. We may know people in our lives and in the world who seem hard-hearted, but who in the end aren't. We may think of some people as shallow-hearted, but in the end, they're not. We may see someone whose life seems to be consumed by worries, by the deceitfulness of wealth or other things. Jesus says, sow seed in all of these places. Tell the gospel, preach the gospel, share the good news of the kingdom to this All of us are called. And this we can do trusting God. The math of the kingdom expects a harvest that is plentiful. A harvest that is full. May we be people ready, eager, and prepared to sow in that field. Let's pray. God, we don't understand a lot about your kingdom, but we're learning, and we're eager to learn. We ourselves want to be good soil. We want to be receptive. We want to have ears that are able to hear. We want to take in your word, your truth, your grace. In fact, our lives depend on it. Help us, Holy Spirit to be receptive, to be good soil. Help us to be and to become those things that we haven't always been and aren't always. That you might grow within us things that bring us joy and that bring you glory and honor. We also ask that you would help us in the task of sowing seed. Help us to be persistent, to not judge quickly, to be hopeful and to declare and share your good news, the gospel of your kingdom, your love for all people, to all people, wherever we're at and whoever we're with. 
And in all of these things, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.